This morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3, sorry, I may have said 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, Decades ago, John Wesley made a very thought-provoking statement. Wesley said this, he said, what one generation tolerates, or kind of the idea would be what one generation accepts, the next generation will embrace. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. Basically, when one generation tolerates some kind of compromise or doesn't hold firm or perhaps uh, cracks open the door uh, a little bit to a thought, belief, or practice, oftentimes the next generation just ends up fully embracing it, swinging the door wide open to whatever that thing is. I think we could question the absolute validity of Wesley's statement, but history would certainly seem to indicate that he was probably onto something. The Apostle Paul repeatedly told Titus to preach, teach, and declare what he called uh, sound or healthy doctrine. Do you think it could be true that when one generation tolerates unhealthy doctrine, that the next generation tends to actually embrace it? And I think actually that may be why you rarely see a, a really doctrinally sound, healthy church Uh, or denomination, or even universities and seminaries stay true to their biblical roots beyond 100 years. In fact, I think what you'll find is that oftentimes, over the course of even just a a few decades, churches and institutions tend to uh, stray away from their roots and, and lose their moorings. And as I say that, I would imagine many of you uh, sit here and you're ready to stand and put your flag in the ground and hold down the fort in your home and at Beaumont Baptist Church and go, not us. We're going to stand on the Bible and we're going to stand on truth. And you should be ready to do that. But I would submit to you that the greater danger is probably not the active compromise of truth, but the passive ignorance of truth that leads to it. Often truth is compromised and unhealthy doctrine tolerated simply because truth isn't even known. And it's not studied and it's not taught. And and, and people, as they trust Christ as their Savior, they're, they're not discipled and mentored by others and brought along. It would be a huge mistake for our church, uh, and that includes you, to assume that among the people who sit here today, whether they're new Christians or have been saved for many years, it would be a huge mistake for us to assume that there is knowledge, understanding, and conviction of healthy doctrine. We cannot passively assume that. Instead, we must actively work towards it, and actively uh, we should preach and teach towards it publicly, and we should disciple and we should mentor towards it individually. And so it is without apology this week and next that I turn our attention to one doctrine, the doctrine of the Bible or the doctrine of Scripture. And I'm going to preach what to many of you will be very familiar and maybe even very simple. And to others of you, you'll go, wow, that was so helpful. I don't think I've ever heard that before. As we focus this morning on the doctrine of the Bible, the big question that surrounds this doctrine is this. Can we trust our Bibles? Can, can we trust these books? I mean, we're all carrying them around, either hard copies or you got it on your phone or your tablet or however you brought it this morning. We're all carrying these books around, this book around in some way, shape or form. Can we trust our Bible? God, just to back up a bit, God chooses to make himself known to people, we could say generally and then also specifically. 
God reveals himself generally to all people through nature and creation. Remember Psalm 19, 1 to 6? It talks about how uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. And basically, you can't even go outside at nighttime and look up at the stars and the moon and, and the sky. Or, or walk out in the morning and watch the sunrise or see the sunset. You can't even look up in the sky without knowing there's a God out there. The heavens declare the glory of God. God through nature has generally revealed himself. He's also generally revealed himself to us through the human conscience. There is something in you. There is something in your child that knows right from wrong. And they were born with that. And there's some kind of moral standard in this conscience that each and every one of us has points to that there must be some basis for morality. And obviously that's God. Uh, history would also generally be pointing to God. However, God reveals himself to us more specifically through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he's also specifically revealed himself to us through the word of God, the Bible. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to you and to me, and you can trust your Bible. I want to encourage you this morning just to let the Bible speak for itself and let the Bible teach you about itself. And I want to start this morning with what the Bible says about itself in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what we read. All scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, many of you, if you've been in church for several years, you may have grown up memorizing this passage in the King James Version of the Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So let's start with that. Uh, this week and next, we're going to look at five teachings of the Bible, just, just one this morning. The Bible teaches the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, this, this idea of inspiration is clearly taught in Scripture, and it's non-negotiable. It is a central and foundational doctrine to the Christian faith. In fact, you can't tamper with it or remove it without everything literally falling apart. Inspiration is much like a load-bearing wall in your home. In, in recent years, uh, open concept floor plans, I think, have been all the rage. I don't know if they still are, but at least for a while, builders, everybody, it's open concept. So maybe you sat on your couch one evening watching Chip and Joanna Gaines blow out walls and do all these kinds of things and renovating houses. And, and you sat there on your couch and you thought, you know, I mean, I'm going to get rid of that, that wall. I'm going to blow this place open. I'm going to make my house an open concept home. Well, you can't just go blowing out any and every wall in your home that you want. It's a little bit of like risky business, right? Depending on what that wall is. If it's a load-bearing wall, the structure of your home actually depends on it. And if all of a sudden you rip that wall out, who knows what's going to happen to the structure of your home? In fact, worst case scenario, it might even fall in and cave in on itself. Inspiration is like that. It's a load-bearing wall. If you remove the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, then Christianity and even the gospel itself collapse like a house of cards. The whole structure comes down. So this doctrine is not up for debate, period. It is a central tenet stated by both Christ and the apostles. Therefore, it's critical that you understand it and that you grasp it and actually even that you be able to articulate it. Because again, we, we don't want to assume truth. We want to pass it on. 
want to teach healthy doctrine publicly and privately. Biblically, there are at least three parts of a proper view of inspiration. First, you need to understand the meaning of inspiration. I've been using this word. You may not even know what it means. You're going to hear me and others describe the Bible as the inspired word of God. Inspiration is the technical term that we use. However, people use it in all kinds of different ways. I mean, you could go to, you could come here to church and I may mention inspiration. You could go to another church and they're talking about inspiration. All types of people are talking about inspiration, but they don't always mean the same thing. So we need to be really clear. I'm going to give you the classic definition of inspiration and then show you how do we get there biblically from, from the text of Scripture. Inspiration is usually defined as, the super, as a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers, the, the sacred writers of Scripture. It's usually defined as the supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers of Scripture by the Spirit of God by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. Let's try to see if we can't shorten that and simplify that definition just a little bit. Uh, you're looking there at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I want to read um, that, that first phrase to you in a couple different translations, because one translation is going to use the word inspiration, and another translation is going to uh, put a, a different phrase there in that slot. And if you t- take those things, you put them together, you'll have your definition. 2 Timothy 3.16, in the King James Version, and then, and then in the ESV. In the King James, it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's our word. Then in the English Standard Version, all scripture is breathed out by God. In short, inspiration means that all scripture is breathed out by God. When we talk about inspiration, that's what we're talking about. In fact, this, this phrase that we just looked at from 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's only three words in the original text. Pasa, it means all, grafe, scripture, and then one more word, theopneustos. Uh, that last word, theopneustos, it's a compound word. The, the first part of the word is theos. Maybe, maybe that's a word you've heard. It, it's the word God. And the second part of the word, penuo, it means to breathe out, not in, out. So all scripture is theopneustos, breathed out by God. Okay, it's pretty simple at this point. All scripture breathed out by God. So remember that phrase, breathed out by God, because we want to keep talking about it, keep looking at it from God's word. That phrase, breathed out by God, speaks to the source of Scripture. All Scripture, then, would be the product of God's mouth. It's the product of God's creative breath. Yes, men put pen to paper, but these are God's words. He is the only source, the only origin, the only initiator of this book. In fact, the Bible states that in no uncertain terms. Keep your finger here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. To borrow the language of a very well-known and renowned theologian from Princeton, uh, B.B. Warfield, the text that we're about to read makes an emphatic denial, and then it turns around and it makes an emphatic assertion. Let's start with the emphatic denial 
from this text. What does 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21 deny? 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. What's the, what is emphatically denied there in those words that I just read and that you're, that you're looking at? Uh, what's emphatically denied is that the scripture owes its origin to human initiative. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Man is not the source of scripture. And God is crystal clear on that. And then on the flip side, this verse also makes an emphatic assertion. Look back at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's emphatically asserted? That God is the source of all scripture. Yes, God used men in the process. He used them as instruments, but God is the source. Even the writers of scripture recognized that they were but instruments of God. You might go, well, this is just kind of a big uh, circular argument. We're looking at scripture and it's what it's saying about itself. But listen to the type of things that the men who God used as instruments dependent. Listen to what they said. The prophets repeatedly said in the Old Testament as they stood up and they spoke and as they wrote, they said, thus says the Lord. In Acts chapter 1 verse 16 we read that the scripture had to be fulfilled. And then notice the uniqueness of the wording that follows, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. David actually said something very interesting. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, David said this, The Spirit of the Lord speaks... By me. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, and His word is on my tongue. The writers of Scripture recognized that God was the author and they were the instruments. This has often been illustrated as this concept has tried to be relayed and communicated. It's often been illustrated by brass or wind instruments. You could, you could take basically any wind instrument, any brass instrument. To kind of maybe communicate some of this, take the trombone for example. When a when a musician plays a trombone, he blows air through it. You know, you, you get these young guys and they're learning how to play the trombone. Maybe a guy or a girl. They're in elementary school. They got this big long trombone, and up and down the slide goes as they honk and noise through it. Right, and over time they get better and better and better. Well, the trombone affects the sound that that, that comes out. Making it different from all kinds of other instruments like the clarinet or the trumpet or the tuba or the bassoon or whatever other instrument. But the trombone, you don't give the trombone credit for making the music, do you? I mean, if you just set it there, it's not making any music. The talent, the creativity, all that belong to the musician. The music belongs to the musician. 
And when, if you go to a concert or you go to a symphony or something like that, and all these different instrumentalists are playing and blowing air through their instrument, at the end of the day, it's not like they all set their instruments down and they all walk off the stage and we all clap and applaud all those instruments sitting there. No. It's, it's the people who are making that music. The musician breathes through his instrument to create his music. And, and God has done something very similar. He has breathed through holy men of God. And he's used them as instruments to accomplish his purposes. And, and, and consequently, the Bible is so much more than the words of men. It's the word of God. So God, uh, so breathed out by God speaks to the source of scripture, but it also speaks. It's not just that. Breathed out by God speaks to the value of scripture. You can keep your finger in Second Peter and turn back with me to Second Timothy chapter 3. Let's read this verse again. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Next week, we'll look at the, the second half of that verse to some extent. But for now, I just want to draw your attention to one word that we just read, and that is the word profitable. That word speaks to the value of scripture and the reason that it's there in 2 Timothy 3.16 is because of what precedes it. Why is it profitable? Scripture is breathed out by God. And that is what it, to what it owes its great value. These words come from God, not from men. And because the scriptures are breathed out by God, they're extremely valuable, profitable, useful to us. And when you don't recognize the source of Scripture, if you fail to grasp the concept that, that these words are breathed out by God, you will not see their value. When you don't recognize the source of Scripture, then you set yourself and society up as the determiner of the value of these words. And that's exactly what happens. People don't hold a high view of Scripture. They don't hold the view that it's breathed out by God, and so they take what they like and they discard what they don't. When Scripture contradicts what's politically correct or whatever's woke at the moment or whatever else, then it's no longer relevant. You, you can just ignore it. There's no value there. Or when Scripture is distasteful to our senses and our thought processes or our own logic and reasonings, and values, then we can just discard it or we can try to explain it away or explain, well, that was just something cultural. When God is not viewed as the source of Scripture, its value is reduced to nothing. Scripture ends up being viewed like a buffet. Do you like buffets? I love buffets. I absolutely love going to buffets, especially Indian buffets. Mm, so delightful. I love going to buffets because I get to pick from a million and one things what I want and what I don't want. What I like and what I don't like. If I go to a, a buffet, here's, here's the truth. There's basically no vegetables on my plate. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're probably not that much different. I mean, there might be a few, but if there's vegetables on my plate, they're a part of a larger dish. Because I can go to, there's only so much room in my stomach and I'm going to fill my stomach up with what I want and what I like. God's word is not a buffet to pick and choose from. If all of scripture has truly been breathed out by God, then all of scripture is profitable for me and for you and for the people of God. The scriptures 
owe their great value to their origin. And that's why here at Beaumont Baptist Church, we're going to preach and teach all of God's word for what it says, whether it's popular or not. And you know what? It won't always be popular, but it will always, always be valuable. Does your value, just, just a question, I mean, some of these truths that I've said for many of you, 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 are, you know these things, right? This is coming to you, perhaps, as very simple truth that you already know. And others of you, maybe you've not, never thought of God's word quite this way. But whether this is really simple truth to you or new truth to you, here's a question for you. Does your personal value of Scripture reflect the value of who it comes from? Does your value of Scripture reflect the value of who it comes from? If you understand what this book is, if you understand that these are not the words of of men, these are the words of God. God breathed these out. And you understand the value of this book, then that's going to influence what you do with it. All of a sudden, this book starts to guide your life and your decision-making and your thinking. And the way that you govern and arrange your life and the way that you live it. And and also, if you understand the value of this book, you say, well, man, if if this is from God, and this is full of truth and wisdom and everything else. And I need, to, I, I need to immerse myself in this. I need to know this. I need to understand it. I need to spend time there. Does your value of scripture reflect the value of the one it comes from? We might ask this though. Are there parts of scripture that aren't inspired or, or maybe inspired to different degrees, right? Like you read the Sermon on the Mount and you may, that's like really inspired And then you go read the genealogies from somewhere in the Old Testament. Uh, Maybe not so much. Are there parts of scripture that either aren't inspired or aren't breathed out by God? To what degree has God inspired his word? Uh, Some other questions. Does inspiration simply extend to the thoughts and concepts and big ideas? God just kind of got the big ideas in the writers of scripture's head and then let them flesh it out? Or does inspiration... Extend all the way down to the individual words and beyond. And that takes us to a second part of a proper view of inspiration. You need to understand the extent of it, the extent of inspiration. The Bible teaches what has come to be known and labeled as verbal plenary inspiration. Why am I giving you the technical term? Because that's what's used and it's probably helpful if you're familiar with it. Verbal Plenary inspiration. Plenary means that inspiration extends to the whole of Scripture. All 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. And verbal means that inspiration extends all the way down to the very choice of words. So inspiration extends as broad as all 66 books of the Bible, and it extends as deep as every little word and nuance. And I want to show you that. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, we could start there on this plenary idea It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. From Genesis to Revelation, scripture is breathed out by God. We call that plenary inspiration. Uh, But why don't you turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 16. What about the individual words? Like, really? Every single one of them? Let's come to this verbal idea. Inspiration 
extends down to the very minutia of God's word. It's not just that, just that God breathed out thoughts and big ideas or, or the gospel message as a whole. God breathed out the individual words. In fact, he breathed out the verb tenses and, and, and more. I'll show you this from one place. We could look at several places, but I think Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 is a really great example of this. The argument of this verse that we're about to look at actually hinges not just on a single word, but in English, a single letter, actually uh, the, the difference between a singular and a plural. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. We're jumping into this without much of the context, but Paul's arguing some major theological truths here. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This whole verse, it's built on the difference between a singular and a plural. Is it offspring singular or is it offsprings plural? And this huge theology is being built off of it. Off of a very small detail. God breathed out the smallest details of his word. Which is why when we go to study God's word, we go, well, it's not just the big ideas. It's not just the, the thoughts. We want to study this line by line and precept upon precept. What is, what are all, what's everything God has said to us down to the small details? Do you have a high view of scripture that recognizes that even the smallest details are breathed out by God? Even the ones perhaps you don't like. Third part of a proper view of inspiration. You need to understand the mode of inspiration. Turn back with me to 2 Peter 1, 20-21. How does God remain the source of Scripture and yet use men in the process? I mean, that, I can't quite put that together in my own mind. How does God remain the source of Scripture and yet use men in the process? We might ask, well, did he dictate the words to them? Okay, Paul, you sit down right here with your quill and your manuscript, and I'm going to give it all to you, and you just write it down. Did he dictate his words to the writers of Scripture? How did it work? And the answer is this. The Bible doesn't give us the the nitty-gritty details on that, actually. We don't really know exactly how the Holy Spirit worked on the writers of Scripture. We do know that he didn't dictate the exact words to them. Uh, He did do that in some places, and that seems to be pretty clear when that's going on. But that's not the general pattern. How do we know that? Well, consider the language of a passage like 1 Corinthians 1, 14 to 16. Paul is, he's talking to the Corinthians. And he says to them, uh, he's talking about who, when he was there in Corinth, uh, I think, you know, I, I baptized this guy, and I baptized that guy. And then he makes this statement, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. It's almost like maybe he, he, he's pretty sure, he's, it's hard as he thinks back, he's trying to remember, did I, was it just these two guys, or did I baptize more? He's saying, I don't remember baptizing anyone else. Okay, well that type of language is not the language of dictation. Paul's talking about what he did. And further, it's not how dictation works, or, or how it would sound, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't have forgotten those details if it was being dictated that way. What we know from 2 Peter 1.21, if you look at that verse again, the second half of it, what we know is that men spoke from God as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that the word that's translated "carried along" there. It's inter- one of the things. Whenever you you find words in Scripture, you often get a fuller picture of what's going on if you look at the way those words are used elsewhere. And so the word carried along, as you kind of look at its usage elsewhere throughout the Bible, there's this fascinating usage of the word in the the book of Acts, chapter 27, verses 15 and 17. And it's in the context of a ship. And the language is that uh, this ship is being driven along. That's the word that's used in 2 Peter 1.21 of these holy men being carried along. Now in, in the book of Acts, it's talking about this ship being driven along or carried along by the wind. I think that gives us a very, very helpful picture. It doesn't give us all the details in full, but it gives us a really helpful picture. Much like a ship being driven by the wind, the wind is taking that ship somewhere. The wind is directing that ship and and picking it up and carrying it along, so to speak. I think we can also assume that God providentially prepared these men for the books that he would pen through them. One writer describes this preparation as a preparation physical, intellectual, spiritual, which must have attended them, the writers of Scripture, throughout their whole lives. And indeed must have had its beginning in their remote ancestors and the effect of which was to bring the right men to the right places at the right time, Times with the right endowments, impulses, acquirements to write just the books which were designed for them. And if you have a a big picture view of God and his power and his sovereignty and his providence, you go, yeah, that's not very complicated. We, we, We read the book of Luke and we see that he brings to that the language of a doctor and the expertise of a doctor. And yet, generations gone by, God would have been preparing Luke, through his family, and where, where uh, his family was put, and Luke's education, and all these things, so that when time had come, God had given Luke his vocabulary. God had given Luke his, his expertise and, and knowledge and medical things. And the book of Luke comes out just as God wanted it to be. The words of God. I think in some ways we know more about what the mode wasn't than what it was. God has left the exact mode a mystery, but the effect is that the words that we have in our Bible, all, all the words that you hold between the, the two sides, two, two ends of your Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, are the words of God. And as we'll look at next week, they're inerrant. They're without error. And they're authoritative. Now we talk about inspiration. I think it's important to know that you also should probably watch out for false theories. There's, a, there's what the Bible teaches and there's some really wrong thoughts on it as well. Uh, a wrong theory would be this dictation theory that the teaching that God actually dictated, uh, it's the teaching that God dictated the words of scripture to the writers. That, that's not accurate. There's something called the intuition theory of inspiration and it teaches that the biblical writers simply had a higher degree of insight does that sound like what we just saw from Scripture? Does that sound like it lines up with God breathing out these words? There's another theory. It's called the illumination theory, which teaches that the Holy Spirit worked so that the biblical writers had an increased ability to discover truth. There was just a heightening of their normal powers by the Spirit of God. 
Does that account for what the Bible said about itself? Uh, another wrong theory is thought inspiration. Well, uh, inspiration just ex- extends to the thoughts, not the big ideas, not the individual words and all the details. Theories like this all fall short of the scriptural data and evidence, and they've got to be rejected. If we're going to hold a high and healthy view of the word of God, and you start compromising on this, again, the whole house falls down. God breathed out every word of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you can trust it. The Bible is God's word. And I think just as we wrap up here, just on the very practical side, I think one of the big applications of theological truth like this is what are we doing with this? Do do we hold those truths dear and believe them? And are we passing them on? And are we making much of our Bibles? You've got... You've got this book in your hand. Generations of Christians didn't have the privilege that you have to sit down and open up their Bible and read it in their language. And you do. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with God's revelation of himself to you? You should be studying it. You should be reading it. You should be obeying it and lining up your life around it. And maybe some of us just need to take a a serious look at our relationship to our Bibles. This great treasure from the Lord, this great gift from the Lord. Are we even making use of it beyond a Sunday morning? Beyond maybe cracking it open a time or two throughout the week? This should be our treasure. We should treasure these words more than the, the literal food of our mouths by the grace of God. So would you bow with me and here in just a moment, we'll ask the Lord to give us the grace to love his word, to hold to it and to arrange our lives around it.